All right, so we're in Luke uh, chapter 9, and uh, Benji did an awesome, awesome job uh, last week. He's becoming one of my favorite pastors, teachers. Um, but we're in Luke chapter 9, and, you know, I, guys, you know, just we started this thing from about Luke chapter 4. We kind of skipped the, the Christmas story. But um, I know if you read the Bible like I read the Bible, we'll just kind of open it up and, and just read a little segment. We'll read about one miracle of Jesus or, you know, some kind of healing or something that Jesus did. And, and we just, just like, it, you know, it's a great story and it sticks in our mind. But Luke, as he's writing this book, he's telling a story in context. You know, he's telling the story. And, um, you know, so we're about to, at Luke chapter 9. We're in this incredible transition point in the Bible or in, in Luke's gospel that, uh, that Jesus realizes now that he's, you know, he's, he's done many miracles. He's, um, you know, done some incredible things. Uh, he's performed things that Isaiah chapter 35 says only the Messiah would be able to do. And yet the religious leaders and because of the religious leaders of that day, convinced the heart of the people that Jesus was really not the Son of God, that he was really not the Messiah, but that he was the son of the devil, uh, Beelzebub, that he was a demon. He was possessed by a demon, and he was able to do many of the miracles that he did were under the power of Satan. And so Jesus realizes that at Luke chapter 9, he's going out to the house of Israel. You know, he sends the, uh, the multitudes, or he sends the twelve, and then We'll read later on that he sends 70 out, and then he sends another group out. But at this time in Jesus' ministry, you know, he realizes, and of course from the beginning he knew, being God in the flesh, that he was going to eventually go to Jerusalem and to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. But at, at, at this point, first of all, he had to give Israel the opportunity to receive him as Messiah, and when that time came that, you know, that they wouldn't receive him, then his whole focus begins to change. And uh, we pick up here where, remember that Jesus' ministry was a three-year ministry, but at Luke chapter 9, we're a little bit more than two years into Jesus' ministry. So we've got about just a little less than a year left of his ministry, and um, most of his ministry had been done not in Jerusalem, but in the northern part of Israel and, you know, up along the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities on the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth. Remember, he just kind of, and if you read it, it's just kind of like, you know, I mean, does he have a plan? Does he have a goal? Does he know what he's doing? I mean, it's just like he's all over the place. He's in Nazareth one day and he's in Capernaum the next day and he's just like back and forth in these little villages and He'd go share the gospel and then come back, do miracles, and back and forth. But then we get to this place in Luke chapter 9, and I just want to skim through this and then really get to the point of my message, but I don't want to overlook some important details in Luke chapter 9. But two years, or a little more than two years into the ministry, Jesus says this to his disciples. This is the first time that it's brought up, okay? And in Luke chapter 9, verse 21... It says that Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he, who he was. This is after he asked Peter and the disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? Some said that you're this prophet, that prophet, Jeremiah, Elijah, someone raised from the dead. And then he asked Peter, he said, well, who do you think that I am? Peter makes that, you know, that amazing proclamation, 
We believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, you know, flesh and blood, Simon, has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And then he goes in verse 22, and this, I get this. This is the first time he mentions this in the whole, the whole ministry, the whole three-year ministry. We're two years into this, and he says, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, must suffer many things, he said, and will be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, and he will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Okay? That, that's just like, boom, that's out there. Now, what do you think that would have happened if he had have said that two years earlier? You know, he, gathering these guys, okay, guys, let me just, you know, I got 12 of you here, let me tell you what's going down. You know, in three years I'm going to be killed, they're going to take me to Jerusalem, they're going to nail me to the cross, I'm going to get, I'm going to get killed, crucified. How many of you think that they would have come along? <laughs> like, what's the point? You know, if you're going to be killed in three years, you know, what's the point of us following you? And then plus, you know, he also goes on to say that what's happening to me is going to happen to you. Now, who's signing up for that on day one? It's like, wait a minute. I need to, let me go home and reconsider. Let me think about this. So he's laying it out, and he's not, he's not soft-pedaling it. I mean, this is the real deal. So here it is. Two years into this, he says that he's going to be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and he will be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And then right on the heels of that, in verse 27, he says, I tell you the truth, and Luke, Luke is telling the story here, that there are some of you that are standing here right now that will not die before they see the kingdom of God. And so I'm thinking, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, he goes on to tell us what it means. He says, eight days later, he said, there's some of you that are standing here right now that are not going to die before you see the kingdom of God. And then it says, eight days later, that's important, that Jesus took Peter, James, and John on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed. Now, this is, this is talking about the kind of body that he had, this, this glorified body that he had that the disciples saw when he was resurrected from, uh, from the dead, they're seeing kind of like a, you know, uh, um, uh, a precursor to that. They're seeing him in this transformed uh, kind of like new body, but not only him. It says, and then two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking to Jesus. So all three of them were there in their glorified bodies. Well, what they're seeing is, Jesus in the millennial reign, they're seeing him in that thousand-year reign where he and all of us that are believers will have these glorified bodies, these bodies that can do what Jesus did. When doors were locked, he was able to just kind of walk through the walls. He was able to be, you know, uh, transformed from one place to another just by thought, it seems like. And so, there, but, but listen to this. He says... Um, they, they were there in their glorified bodies, and they were glorious to see. Now listen to this. And they were speaking about his exodus. This is what they were talking about. The three of them were there on the mountain, and Peter and James and John are just like, yeah, they're you know, just kind of observing this. And they were talking about his exodus from this world. Remember the children of Israel we called the exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. But they're talking about his exodus out of this world which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And Peter, 
uh, and the others had fallen asleep. And when they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him, Moses and Elijah. You know, Moses represented the law and, and Elijah represented the prophets. And they were uh, starting to leave. And Peter, not knowing what he was saying, I like this translation. It says he blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let us make three shelters uh, as memorial, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, now keep in mind, now think about what Peter's saying. Now, Peter is equating Moses and Elijah and Jesus all on the same level. He's like, I'm, there are three great people right here before me. There's, we got... You know, Moses representing the law, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah. And then we got Jesus. You know, they're all, they're all here. They're all, they're all equal. They're all the same. They're all good teachers. They're all good prophets. It says, um, and then it says, but even as he was saying this, a cloud came over them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, listen to this, guys. Listen to this. You got to listen up. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the, when the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. So it wasn't about Moses, and it's not about Elijah. It's not about the law, and it's not about the prophets. What it's about right now is Jesus Christ. And a Hebrew writer says, God spoke to us in, in sundry times, different places, different times, through different prophets, but today he is speaking to us through his son, Jesus Christ. All right? We got that? All right. And so then the, right after that happens, they go down and the disciples try to cast the demon out of a boy in Luke 9, 37. And, uh, and Jesus, has, they, they're, they're not able to do it. And Jesus shows up, casts the, the demon out of, out of the boy. And then just right on the heels of this, now remember, you know, eight days later, he talked about his death. Eight days later, they're on the mountaintop. And then just right after that eight-day period, Jesus says it again. He just wants to reemphasize, you know, something's about to happen, and I want to make you aware of it. And so this is the second time in like eight or nine days, and Jesus says, while everyone was marveling at what he was doing, that casting out the demon, he says, listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of the enemy. And they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, think about this. Why would he say something to them that they couldn't understand, and he knew that they wouldn't understand? I mean, that's kind of baffling. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something, but I don't really want you to understand it. And then you go all the way to Luke's, uh, to the, the last chapter of Luke, and it says that Jesus appears to the disciples and he opened their understanding, and for the first time, they understood what he meant about being crucified and being, you know, put to death on the cross, buried, and on the third day, being raised from the dead, resurrected, and then ascended into heaven. All right, so I just want to, I want to cover that. I want you to see this, because he keeps, like, he, he keeps throwing this in, you know, that, you know, I'm going, I'm going, I'm, we're going to, we're going to Jerusalem, you know, remember, his ministry is in the northern part of Israel, but this is a transition a place where he said, you know what, it's not about northern uh, Israel anymore. I am going to Jerusalem, and I am going to be crucified there. And it, then it says, after, after saying this twice, it says, then a dispute 
arose among them to which of them would be the greatest. Who would be the greatest? And so Jesus is saying, guys, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified there. And what they're hearing, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be Messiah. I'm going up to Jerusalem and to receive my glory. Peter and James and John are all arguing about who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left. You know, I'm going to serve. I'm getting ready to serve. We're going to Jerusalem. Yeah, going to Jerusalem. Jesus is like, and I'm going to Jerusalem right here, right here. I'm going to be stretched out in Jerusalem. But Yeah, but can I sit on the right and can I sit on the left? You know, I, I, get me to Jerusalem. Let's go, Jesus. I mean, we're on, we're on track now. We're going to Jerusalem. I mean, they're hearing one thing, and Jesus is saying something completely different. Sometimes that happens to us, I know, in our Christian walk, that, you know, we hear things that are being spoken differently. Now, I want to get to just really what I set you up for, and that is uh, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind, in, in, in um, John chapter, I'm just going to paraphrase this for you, in John chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends out the 12, and he says, I want you to go in every town and village. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cast out demons. I want you to do all of these things in my name. And then um, we see, um, you know, another group that, that's going out. That we, we see another group that goes out in the middle of um, uh, Luke chapter 9. Uh, another group goes out, and then we're going to pick up this in uh, Luke chapter 46. But before we get there... I want you to listen to two, two really key points right here that I want to make this morning. It says, John uh, said to him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. And then immediately after that, when they came, that came to pass that when the uh, the time had come, all right, listen to this right here. This is really important. This is, this is a turning point. When the time had come for him to be received up. Now, I, I like that. I like that one of the translations speaks about when, it, when the time came for his ascension. You know, in, in so many of the movies that we see, like The Passion of Christ, the Gibson Passion of Christ, the whole focus was on, I mean, it, it, it just, I mean, it wore me out. I mean, not just wore me out, but it was mentally exhausting to see, you know, the detail of the beating that Jesus went through before he actually got to the cross. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking most people would have died under just the beating alone. But the main focus was upon his beating and upon his death. And Jesus is saying, when the time had come for him to be received up, he's going to Jerusalem not to just to die. I mean, certainly death was, you know, an important part of it, but he was going to Jerusalem to go back up. He was going to ascend back up into heaven. That he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they, went, they entered into a village of the Samaritans to prepare uh, a place for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. All right, guys. Now, I, I want to just hone in on this for just a second. 
um, what, what they're doing. He sent these 70 out, okay? And what they're, they're doing is just exactly what you and I would do as if we were going on a trip. You, you might phone ahead if you're traveling and you're going to be gone for a couple of days. You would say, I'm going to spend, you know, I'm going to drive 500 miles and I'm going to spend the night in this town, drive another 500 miles and spend the night in this town. That's exactly what these men are doing. They're going out to, I mean, keep in mind that, you know, he's, he's sending out 70. He's got the 12 plus the women. We believe that there's probably two or 300 people in Jesus's party. And you don't just show up in a town and look for a place that would house 300 people. You know, you send out these people ahead of you, these scouts ahead of you, and make accommodations. You make reservations. And so that's what's happening. So, to, you know, James and John go to this town in Samaria. And let me just give you just a quick little history on Samaria. In um, about seven, a little more than 700 years, about 750 years before Jesus' birth and life on this earth, uh, that the Assyrians came in and captured the northern kingdom of Israel, took all of the men and women, or most of the men and women as slaves, back up into Syria, uh, or to Assyria, and then they sent their own people down into Israel to repopulate uh, Israel. Well, there were some holdouts in Israel, some men and some women, that after a while they began to marry or intermarry with the Assyrians. And so after their release, you know, after a number of years, the Assyrians released them, and the uh, Isra Isra Israelites were able to come back into Israel. And when they recognized, when they got back in, they saw all of this like, you know, you're a Jew, you're married to a Gentile, and they called them Samaritans. And this is the whole story about the woman at the well in Samaria. And it says the, the, the Jews, the disciples were just baffled that Jesus was even talking to this woman, a Samaritan woman. And so they became, the Jews became like Gentiles in the eyes of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans became like Gentiles in the eyes of the Jews. Uh, they, they despised each other. They were like worse than Gentiles. They, the Jews felt like the Samaritans were traitors. Um, you remember that the woman at the well said that you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship, but we say on this mountain is the place to worship. So the Samaritans had, had rejected uh, the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, the Psalms and the prophets. They observed the law of Moses, but they believed that the special worship place for them was uh, in Samaria. The Jews believed that the temple was in, Jer in Jerusalem. So once this innkeeper, or once this person realized that Jesus was not coming into Samaria to embrace the Samaritans, but he was on his way to Jerusalem, they just rejected him. They just said, you know what, no, no thanks. We don't want anything to do with him because he's going down uh, to Jerusalem. And so uh, James and John, you know, just like, you know, just like totally upset about it because they have rejected Jesus, you know, wants to scorch him. It's just like, you know, they got that from 2 Kings uh, chapter 17 where Elijah, you know, is ready to call fire down from heaven uh, upon the prophets of Baal uh, and, and burn them up because, you know, they were uh, false prophets. And it's just kind of like that same mindset. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And then they just went on to another village. So while I'm here... At this point right here, let me just ask you, of the disciples, you have a favorite disciple? Anybody got a favorite disciple? Who's your favorite? John? 
Peter. Okay, we got Peter and John. Okay. All right, you, uh, who wants to be like Peter today? Raise your hand. Oh, you like him. Okay, I got one up here. Who wants to be like John today? Okay, raise your hand. But you guys don't want to be like anybody, do you? <laughs> I, you, you, you think I'm setting you up, and I am. Uh, because really, you know what he said to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan, right? I don't want to be like Peter. And then what did he say to James and John? He says, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Well, if you're not of God's spirit, you're of Satan. And it's like nobody wants to be that either. And so he's kind of giving them a sharp uh, rebuke. You know, he's just, you know, kind of like getting in their face. So, guys, I read this story. These two stories are important for us today. I, I, in my mind, they're important for us. You've got James and or you've got John that says, Lord, we saw somebody that was casting out demons in your name. We told him to stop it. We told him to knock that off because he's not with us. All right. I mean, here's somebody that's on the side of Jesus, that loves Jesus, and that's casting demons out in the name of Jesus, okay? Uh, what's wrong with that? Apparently, Jesus didn't think anything was wrong with it. But then you got James and John that go to Samaria, and you got this whole town that wants to reject Jesus. They, they don't want to give him a, a, a hotel to spend the night in because he's not, you know, staying there. He's going on to Jerusalem. And they want to just toast him. I mean, they're just like, you know, let's just call fire down upon them. I want to give you just, I want, I want you to consider something. Um, and, and just do this as an experiment on your own sometime. You walk down the street and find just the average person walking down the street and ask them 10 things that Christians are against. What are Christians opposed to? What do you think they're going to say? Help me out. What are Christians opposed to? Abortion. Abortion. Gay marriage. Same-sex marriage. What else? Yes. Sleeping together without being married. What else? Drinking. <laughs> what was that? I'm having fun. I, I'm having fun. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> All right, over here. What are Christians against? Huh? Yes. Idols. What else? Lying. What else? Obama. <laughs> and it was Bush before him, right? Look, guys, everybody knows what we're against. Everybody knows what we're against. We're against all of that stuff. Zobra and, you know, I mean, just parties and, you know, don't go into bars and don't sit in, even if you're going to have a meal, don't sit in a bar. You know, we're opposed to so much stuff. Everybody knows what we're against. Ask the same person what Christians are for. What do they stand for? You know what? You'll hear dead silence because they don't know what we stand for. They don't know what we're, for, what we're for. They don't know what we're, you know, what we love and what we support. They just know what we're against. Just like these guys right here, they're against the guy that's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're against the Samaritans because they won't receive Jesus. I mean, they know what we're against. How about for a chance or a change? that we start showing the world what we're for. Now, let's stop talking about what we're so negative against. I mean, that stuff will fall into place. 
I mean, as you read the Word of God, you can't come to church or read the Word without finding out, you know, sure, we have things that we're on our do list and our don't list. But, you know, it seems like we always present the negative first. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that kind of Christian. And I know you don't either. All right, so if you don't want to be that kind of Christian, um, you know, how do we avoid that? I want to just show you how to be a healthy Christian. Um, you know, we get to a place just like these disciples where we get messed up and we have, the, I mean, they knew a lot. They knew, let me just tell you what they knew. They knew that, that men must, they knew him, uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that men must accept him and trust him. They knew that God desired to work through men and display his power to reveal his son. They knew that by faith they could be used by God to do miraculous things. But they were missing the big picture. They didn't understand the whole picture of why Jesus had come. And here's a town that probably had never even heard the message of the cross, and they were willing to, you know, burn them up, to torture them. You know, the problem is that as Christians, we're forever proving that old adage that, you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And we get to a place in our walk. We start out, you know, with good intentions, but we get to a place in our walk where we stop learning and we stop listening and we stop following, and we get busy, and we get distracted, and we get bored, and we get offended, and we get away from learning the process that God said should be lifelong. And I, it's happened to me, and I know it's happened to you as well. So how do we get back on track? Um, you know, I think the best way is uh, there, there's a, a great passage of Scripture, and we're going to wrap it up with this, out of, the book of, uh, out of the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 2, and I want you to just listen to this carefully. It says that, Peter, this is on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has already fallen. It says that uh, with many other words, Peter uh, testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? I mean, just think about the preaching. I'm free, Peter and, and that group of 120 are out. They've gone out into the streets. They're preaching, testifying about Jesus. About 3,000 people are saved. Now listen to this. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayer. And fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. There's another translation that says they were all filled with awe and wonder. And, you know, that concerns me because today I feel like many times we come to church, but we don't come in expectation or anticipation, and that we've lost our sense of awe and wonder. Now, I'm not talking about what happened to you 20 years ago when you got saved in a youth camp or when you first got saved. You were filled with awe and wonder then. But over a period of time, you've lost your awe and wonder about the very presence of being in God, being in the presence of God. Now, I just noticed this morning as we were sitting here worshiping or standing worshiping, 
and I, you know, just occasionally glanced around, and I could see, you know, some with just, with the greatest joy just all over their face, but I could see others with tears just streaming down, you know, by being in the presence of God, that God was doing something in individuals' lives. And I believe that if we just come to church just because it's the thing to do on Sunday morning, you know, we will lose our sense of awe and wonder. I mean, God is just so amazing. How can we be in his presence without experiencing awe? I mean, it's just like, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so they came, fear came upon everyone or every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And those who believed together had all things in common. They sold their possessions and good, divided them among all uh, as anyone had need. And so they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this all starts with them being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to just transition from that right there to how to live and how to have a healthy, balanced Christian life so that we don't get off like James and John and Peter, that we're not ready to call fire down on our boss or our coworkers or someone that's offended us, somebody that's cut you off in traffic, someone that's, you know, giving you the single-digit salute. You know, I'm just telling you, you know, how not to be that kind of person that is ready to call fire down on somebody, or how not to reject the guy that goes to the church down here on the corner that's different than what we believe and, and try to cut them off and say that, you know, we're right and they're wrong, and, you know, if you don't do it our way, then you're not doing it the right way. I don't want to be that kind of church, and I don't want us to be that kind of people. So that leads me into how we got here. And I'm not just talking about how we got here this morning in your car or walk or bicycle I'm just talking about how we got here as the light. A number of years ago, it's been almost 10 years now, that we felt like, our leadership felt like, God was calling us into a new identity, into a new place, uh, with a new vision, with a new purpose, and uh, we felt change was coming. And uh, we prayed about a name for the church, we prayed about a name for uh, this new organization, what God was going to do, and uh, we came up with the word, the light. And the light is an acronym, and, and I, I, I want, you know, if you attend here, everyone in this room needs to know what this acronym stands for. And I'm going to go uh, through this with you this morning, because if you will follow this, this will keep you from being the kind of person that wants to call fire on your neighbor or cut somebody off because they don't believe like you do. And so uh, light, L-I-G-H-T is an acronym. The L in light stands for love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And uh, the first and the greatest commandment, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the L in light stands for loving God and loving man. The I in light is, uh, uh, is a reference to investing, what the Bible talks about investing your time, your talent, your treasure, your money into the kingdom of God. It's also your service. Remember Jesus said in 619, Matthew 619, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So this is called investing. The eye and light is for investing your time into the kingdom of God and everything that you are. The G and light is for going, going to the lost and to the hurting. This is your ministry. And Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is our ministry. This is each one of us has, this is not just my job. This is your job as well. This is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. The H in light is for honor, honoring one another. This is fellowship. Uh, he uses that in that Acts chapter 2 passage that we read. They were fellowshipping, breaking bread. That's talking about having communion, having meals together. Um, I like this translation. I think this is the uh, today's living Bible. It said, don't just pretend that you love one another or that you love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Stand on the side of good. Love each other with brotherly affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy in your work, but serve. See how these kind of, uh, they're intertwined. Uh, honoring and serving and ministry. Never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Be glad for all God is planning for you. Be patient in trouble, prayerful always. When God's children, children are in need, you be the one that helps them out. And get into the habit, listen to this, of inviting guests home for dinner or if they need lodging for the night. One of the things that we're going to do in our leadership is that... Uh, some of our men, some of our elders and deacons, uh, will, you'll be getting a call from them. I think, let's see, uh, Ralph, stand up right there if you would please. And where am I? Uh, James is out. I don't see James, but uh, going this direction here. Jim is here. Jim, if you would stand up. Uh, I'm trying to think who else is on that team. Donald's not here today. Nina and I will be. James is uh, back on the grill. But anyway, you know, we're, you're going to receive invitations from the leadership of the church to come and just have a meal together just like that. Go ahead. You guys can sit down now. Thank you. Uh, but as he says, get into the habit of inviting guests to home for dinner. You know, do that. I mean, take somebody, I, I, take somebody out after church. Invite somebody out. In fact, you can invite somebody out today. Meal's on us, okay? Just invite them over to the cafeteria and have a meal on us today. But next week when it's not on us, on your dime, invite them out and pay for their meal and be a good tipper. And then invite the waitress or the waiter to come to the light. All right, the T in uh, light is for teaching and training. This is called discipleship. Now listen to these words. I, I don't think I've read this verse in this translation before, but listen to this. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. Oh, that's sweet. I like that. And then Jesus says in Matthew 28, teach these new disciples to obey all, that I, all the commands that I have given you. So, uh, how many of you have seen the uh, Billy Graham uh, My Hope video? Anybody see that? All right, one, two, three... For five, a few of you have. All right. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got a call, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to just tell you half of the story. Uh, but